Hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Where can you get the best medical information any time, anywhere? Right here on the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. This podcast strives to bring you the latest advances in medicine to keep you informed in your medical decision making, of course, with your doctor's uh, knowledge. Disclaimer, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as personal medical advice. For that, please consult with your trusted healthcare professional. Now, I've done several podcasts on food allergies with top allergists, and you can look back at uh, the last couple of years. But I thought it was imperative today to discuss a new test, a blood test that can help in ways regarding assessing food allergies. One, in helping to make an accurate diagnosis of a food allergy, and second, enabling your physician to assess if your treatment for a food allergy, which they now exist, you're able to tolerate that food. Both of these are extremely important. Up until now, the gold standard in diagnosing a food allergy, such as peanut allergy, was a food challenge. This method, in my estimation, a little a bit barbaric, is that you're giving the patients under medical supervision the food that they may be allergic to and then observing to see if they have a reaction. This is a, an effective way of doing it, but it can be very traumatic for uh, any parent or child going through it that knows they are allergic to a food and don't know whether they're going to react. My guest today, Dr. Alexandra Santos, is a leading researcher from the United Kingdom who has been publishing work showing that a new blood test, the basophil activation test, can potentially supplant the need in many cases for a food uh, challenge. And I think this will go a really long way to bringing relief to many uh, of those children and adults that suffer with food allergies. Dr. Santos is a professor of pediatric food allergy at King's College of London. It's an extremely prestigious institution. And she has published widely in the field uh, of allergy. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Alexandra Santos to the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. Okay. So uh, I think I guess well, I'd like to start a little bit. Um, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but sometimes it's hard to ignore the headlines. I got called from a reporter yesterday, something to the effect of uh, there's this report that children that grow up in homes with uh, cats and dogs have less food allergies. So when I first heard this, because I hadn't really seen the paper, I'm like, oh, no, another story, you know, another, you know, headline news, probably nothing to it. And then I just saw it again today. And apparently it came out of Japan and they had a lot of patients. They had about 66,000 uh, children that were followed. And they are reporting that, you know, children that grow up, you know, either when the mother's pregnant or early in life with a dog or cat had less food allergies, although the caveat, I don't know again if you've, Dr. Sandos, if you've, you've seen the study yet, but that it was uh, only in Japan, so it wasn't really a cross-section of countries, and apparently they didn't test the children for the food allergies. It was from the uh, physician's um, history talking to the parents, so I don't know what your thoughts on that are, or if you could put on anything about why you think food allergies are so prevalent. Yes, no, that's that's a fascinating study. I mean, that's one of, you know, the limitation you just mentioned is one of the 
many limitations in food allergy studies is how you diagnose food allergy. And we know that self-reported food allergies, so people you know, claiming that they have a food allergy is much more common than clinicians diagnose food allergy, which in turn is much more common than challenge proven food allergy. So we always need to be very careful when assessing studies, how was food allergy determined? Um, uh, but I mean, I have to say that in London, also in the EAT study, which was led by my colleague, uh, Dr. Gideon Lack and um, and also um, Dr. Tom Mars. Um, there was um, uh, an association between um, dog ownership and development of food allergy by the age of three. So the eat, the eat study was a um, um, a large study where babies were recruited even before birth, and then they it was a randomized controlled trial looking at early introduction of allergenic food. So they were randomized to either um, uh, continue breastfeeding until the age of three months and introduce solids and then continue breastfeeding until the age of six months or be exclusively breastfed until the age of six months and introduce solids after that. So food allergy was the primary outcome of the study and it was just a sort of a side observation. But in fact, in the UK, in the EAT study, dog ownership was a protective factor against the development of food allergies. And I mean, this is just an observation, it's an association we don't. We can only speculate, you know, the reasons why. Um, but part of the reasons could have to do with the hygiene hypothesis. You know, having being exposed to pets and being exposed to, um, you know, and going back to start the farm studies, looking at exposure to animals in farms can be protective um, towards the development of asthma allergies and, and more recently food allergies. So that you know, could I, be, you know, yeah. Part of the I mean, I know. Why. It's really funny. I did a whole podcast on that with uh, with Moises um, Velasquez. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a he's actually a science journalist, and he did a beautiful book called "An, An Epidemic of Absence," and he did explore that really in depth. And I know for many years, again, in my in my background in allergy and immunology, where the hygiene hypothesis. I even wrote about it in my book that I wrote, uh, the Allergy and Asthma Solution, that that was um, you know having animals and pets exposure. Although I do find it a little bit different just having like you know a domesticated dog versus working on a farm affecting the microbiome but look anything is possible you know just one other thing i want to touch on and then i really want to get into the testing you know you work at uh, i believe it's guy's hospital yes and dr gideon lack is very well known for the leap study where you know that set that kind of through every allergist's head on you know into a spin that all of a sudden you know for years we're telling mothers keep you know peanuts away from your children and you know maybe you'll have a better chance of not having a food allergy and then all of a sudden dr lack and his group come out with wow we see that in israel there seems to be less peanut allergy and they believe the reason was the early introduction of a a peanut sesame paste into the diet so is that still holding up and um you know, is uh, do you think that's the direction that the prevention of this explosiveness of food allergies will need to take to reduce um, the prevalence? Yes, I mean that's one of the one of the possible explanations for the increase in food allergy that we have seen. Right, we 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 moved on from the from avoiding allergens in during you know during uh, pregnancy, lactation, uh, and and the early you know, the early years in the children's lives to actually be more proactive in introducing the foods. And um, and indeed, the LEAP study demonstrated an 81% reduction in peanut allergy at the age of five for the, the children that had peanut 
get introduced in a diet in the first year of life and continue consuming up at the age of five. So that that he's holding up. I mean, there's a just a recent publication came out actually looking at the the risk reduction in in um, because the LEAP study was done in high risk infants. So the recent publication looked at the risk reduction of 77 percent. In you know any child, regardless of the risk. So um, so I think so. I mean that's that's I think that's the, the effect was very impressive, and I think that's one of the reasons, one of the strategies that we can adopt and we should adopt in our clinical practice to prevent the development of peanut allergy. You know, advise introduction of peanut uh, in the diet as you know as um, as suitable as long as the child is not already allergic. Right. I think that's a very key point because I think some parents get very confused. Like, oh, I hear the study. I should introduce peanut early, but my child's starting to have reactions already. And that could be a, a dangerous situation. Okay. I want to really get into the evolution of allergy testing because I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a student of history. And I actually, I trained in New York at what was, I think, the oldest allergy institution in the country. It was called the Robert Cook uh, Institute of Allergy. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore, which is kind of a sad story on its own. But Dr. Cook, and this is what I find fascinating, I think it was in the 1930s or 40s, he basically started to, to really develop allergy testing uh, in the United States. And uh, But back then, and this is kind of interesting too, actually, as an aside, you know, I, I, I think he was familiar with and based a lot of his work on the British work of doctors Noon and Freeman. If you know your history, they were the ones who did the original food allergy testing, I think, to fish on each other or something. Uh, but anyway, so Dr. Cook started doing the skin testing. Mainly it was intradermal at the time. And later, as we know, it evolved to prick skin testing. So that was the, you know, and most people, when they hear about going to see an allergist, like, oh, I'm going to get you know, 50, you know, pricks with a needle on my arm and, you know, nobody's thrilled about that. But that was the way things were done. Then, as you probably know, in the 1970s with the discovery of the immunoglobulin E, IgE, which, you know, is what causes, we know, um, children and adults to have specific allergies, that became available it was maligned a lot at first. Oh, it's not as good as the skin testing. It's got problems, but it has evolved. And now it's something called the Immunocap, which is, you know, from my understanding, the technology is better. I use it all the time. I find it to be extremely accurate, you know, and of course, doing the blood testing uh, bypasses the risk of an allergic reaction from actually being, you know, tested um, on the skin. And, uh, and that usually for myself was a fairly good guide, um, you know, whether somebody's allergic, whether it's to an environmental allergen or to a food allergen. Um, but now we're sort of evolving into this new test, which you've been uh, publishing a lot on called the basophil activation test. So I guess my, it's sort of a two-part question I'm going to ask you a little bit about the evolution of the testing. And maybe also you could explain before we get into the basophil activation test, what is a basophil? I, a lot of our listeners know because a lot of them are following the podcast I've been doing. That they're, they're very familiar with what's called mast cells because there's a big term now with mast cell activation. And I actually had Mariana Castells from from Harvard on. We talked about that. But anyway, tell me about your thinking on the evolution of testing and even maybe what you see in the UK, what doctors are doing because maybe a lot of them still are doing skin testing. And do you you think that's appropriate? 
Yes. Uh, yes. No. Thank you for the question. So the the we we still do skin pick tests every day. <laughs> we do a lot of skin pick tests still in our clinic. So essentially, skin pick test uh, looks at the mast cell responses on the skin, right? So we have. Uh, you know, we um, put the allergen on the skin and then we prick through gently with a lancet, uh, which allows the allergens to penetrate the skin and interact with immune cells there. Uh, and so this allergen is going to activate the mast cells in the skin and then the mast cells respond and react and they release mediators that cause this wheel and flare reaction. And then we measure the wheel and in millimeters and that's the result of our test. So we still do it a lot. Do you do it we have to remember though that... Do you, I'm sorry. Do you do it because it's quick inexpensive i mean is that would you say is that still probably the reason or is it just because that's the way it's been done no i think one of the you know some of the advantages is because it's quick um it's cheap it's very inexpensive although we have to have very well trained staff and it needs to be done properly you know right. uh, otherwise the results could be variable but also the patients can see you know it can it can be used really as a good sort of tool to start talking about allergies and educate okay. them um, but I think the costs is also a big part of it, um, okay. to, to be sense. honest. Um, and then we do IgE testing. Yeah, we do IgE testing. We use a lot, you know, the immunocap test. So this is IgE to um, an allergen extract, which is a mixture of different proteins, some allergenic, some not, which are bound to this solid face or so this sort of cap, a little cap. And they are bound there. Uh, and then we, um, in the so this is an automated assay done, you know, we're using in the lab, using an equipment, an automated equipment. But essentially, uh, the, the serum, so the blood from the patient without the cells, but contain the antibodies, are added to this solid phase. And then an, an antibody against IgE that has some luminescence, so some light that is able to be detected by the equipment uh, will then bind. And if it binds, you know, the higher the signal, the higher the levels of IgE. And it, it, it's a quantitative, actually, a quantitative assay. So we can measure the amount of IgE that's there directed to this allergen extract. Uh, we can also use individual allergens, so um, specific proteins within an allergen source. So, for example, in peanut, there is this protein called RH2. So the proteins are named according to the Latin name for the species. So peanut is Arachis hypogea. And then the number, so it's usually the three letters of the genus, the first letter of the species, and then a the number that usually coincides with uh, the order by which the allergens were described. You do, so your Latin's very this. good. Your Latin's very good because I, I never could pronounce <laughs> that. I always call it RH1. But let me ask you this too, just so, because I love it. You're referring to what's called component testing, which is really, yes. again, not very well known in the United States. I mean, I think some of the allergists, but not even all of them are really comfortable with it. I really enjoy it. I've been uh, involved in using that to test patients for over a decade. Because, again, I like the idea of especially initially testing, you know, I have the luxury, you know, we're getting coverage on patients here in the United States of doing the blood testing so you don't have to risk and you could do a wide range of testing. Um, but sometimes, and I have to explain this to other doctors when I get calls from pediatricians, for example, they'll say, oh, I did the, I did the immunocap testing and everything came back positive. And as you know, sometimes a patient, a child has a very high total IgE, meaning for our listeners, that the uh, the cells are just reacting to all the allergens in the uh, in the test, so that doesn't really give us a lot of information. But the component test, if like as you were saying, like with the peanut, there are specific proteins uh, for peanut that unfortunately sometimes can cross react with grass, um, you know, so that this way you can get a much better idea. 
And as you uh, just bring up, I actually wrote a little small paper about this here in the United States for a journal. You know, the RH2 is now, I think, very well accepted as probably one of the most uh, sensitive and specific tests for peanut allergy. Am I, am I correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, that's correct. So when we when we test Ig to allergen extracts, it contains a multitude of allergens. And for some food, so it's not for all foods. You know, components are not informative for all foods. But peanut mm-hmm. is a very good example of um, a food where food components are very helpful uh, because we can determine Ig to these individual proteins. So, for example, Rh2, as you said, is you know it's been um, linked to a very sort of um, discriminative power uh, between allergy and non-allergy in patients that have a positive Ig to peanut extract. And then there's other proteins like Rh8, for example, which is cross-reactive. Right. It's an allergen that's involved in phenomenon of cross-reactivity and can be positive in patients with pollen allergy that do not have, may or may not have peanut allergy. And it can cause false positive results in the peanut uh, test, so the peanut extract test. So it's useful to, to um, look for Ig to these specific components to have a more clear picture, more defined picture of whether this Ig to peanut is real peanut allergy or not. Okay. So let me give you like a real life example, because this is important for our listeners. And I do this in my own practice, again, for a multitude of reasons. But let's say a child gets referred to me or the parent brings them to my office and said, Dr. Mitchell, um, we were um, at a party and my child ate some cookies and she started to develop uh, hives all over her body, a little bit of trouble breathing. You know, we gave her Benadryl, it resolved. I'm really worried. I checked with uh, the person from the party. And, you know, there were eggs, milk, you know, peanuts or some other tree nuts in the, um, in the cookie. And, you know, I, I run the, let's say I run the, you know, initially the immunocap blood test. And it's negative for milk and wheat and a couple of the other things. But it's positive for uh, peanut. And then here in the United States, they'll do, which is nice, the labs will do what's called a reflexive test, meaning the test turns out positive. They will then run the components of the peanut allergen. And this child came back positive, very high for ARA H2, the very specific marker. So for me, it's like game over. Uh, this patient is allergic to peanut. I don't feel the need to do a food challenge. Do you agree? Is that you know enough to make yes, you feel confident? Yes, absolutely agree. Okay. Yeah, absolutely confident. So the history is clear, you know, that's the most likely allergen. And then, the, mm-hmm. you know, all the others that were probably tolerated even and tested negative. And then we document with Ig to peanut and then Ig to Rh2, which we know in the vast majority of, you know, the last vast majority of sensitized patients, uh, positive, patients that have a positive test to RH2 are allergic. So yeah, I don't think in that case, we don't need to do any further. So it's nice for the for the parents that don't have to worry, oh, my child has to be challenged now and see, they should just know at this point, you know, about avoidance. So, okay. So I guess this moves me on and we kind of did a nice little quick history of uh, allergy testing, but to go on to what the work that you're doing, because I find it fascinating. I find it very exciting and encouraging. And I'll tell you in a moment because what I've been doing in my own practice too, because what I've done on the podcast before, I've had on some really terrific people like Carrie Nadal, who I think I'm sure you're familiar with. Who She was at Stanford. Now she's at Harvard doing some other stuff. You know, I've talked to her a lot about food allergy treatment because I've always said it's the holy grail in allergy. I mean, every field has the, the, you know, the, the, the area they want to conquer. And now it really is food allergies. It terrifies parents. It it really disrupts the lives of children who want to have a normal life. 
And up until the last several years, the best a doctor or analogist could say was avoidance. And, you know, unfortunately, when someone has multiple food allergies or certain ones that are very hard to avoid, it's very dismaying that, that medicine doesn't have anything to offer. So fortunately, there have been some bold uh, research institutions around the world, and especially also here in the United States, that have taken that on. And uh, I've talked about this in the podcast. There's essentially, I think, two, even though people think there's only one. They, you know, People, and I think the public's getting a little bit of knowledge about what's called oral allergy immunotherapy, or OIT, where the child is given the actual food they're allergic to in small amounts, but eventually in very large amounts. And that has been shown to be successful in desensitizing, you know, a lot of patients to peanuts, tree nuts, various different foods so that the child can now tolerate this food and hopefully on exposure, not have an issue. Um, the other one, which I really like a lot is what I do in my own practice is the sublingual allergy immunotherapy for foods. I do it for environmental allergens also, but I've been doing the foods the last several years. Dr. Edwin Kim, who you may be familiar with, who's now in North Carolina with Dr. Burks, they moved over from uh, Duke, uh, has published a lot of nice studies on peanut sublingual immunotherapy, as well as oral immunotherapy, showing that the children could uh, tolerate um, up to sometimes three to eight peanuts, you know, after getting to a certain level with the um, sublingual drops. But and this is where it involved me in private practice. It was like, okay, so you're doing, you're treating these patients. How do we know they've achieved success? Because not all of them do. And of course, it was back to the food challenges, you know, where you have to challenge these kids. Um, sometimes they passed, meaning they had no reaction. And great, there was a big celebration. <laughs> sometimes they didn't pass, and it was frustrating. And I've been watching and following your publications about the basophil activation test uh, as a means to assess if a child, or I guess an adult, has a cheap tolerance to a food. So maybe again, I'm going to come back to the question I asked before to maybe explain a little bit what the, a basophil is versus like you were talking about a mast cell. And then maybe I'd like to do a little bit of a deep dive because I have a, a case example I'd sent to you and hopefully we can explain a little bit to the public. And I want to learn how do we use this tool to its optimum? Thank you. So, so basophils are together with mast cells, what we call the effector cells of food allergic reactions and anaphylaxis. So when a patient experiences an acute allergic reaction to a food or anaphylaxis, this is the result of the response of basophils and mast cells. So um, they both derived from blood cells, but mast cells migrate to the, they go into the tissue. So they exist, you know, in our nose, in our lungs, in our guts, in our skin. And basophils circulate in the blood. They can go into the tissue, but only if they are sort of cold there. You know, usually they are um, they are in the blood, and this is what makes them so sort of attractive to use for testing because it's you can we can just collect a small volume of blood to do to do this test. And so what what happens with basophils and mast cells in allergic reactions is that they are covered with IgE antibodies. So these allergy antibodies that can be directed against peanut, against milk, against egg, they are covered. Um, they are all covered with these antibodies. And so when um, uh, when the allergen uh, reaches basophils and mast cells, uh, it's able to what we call cross-link IgE. So it means binding to two IgE molecules mm -hmm. at least like a bridge. Yeah. at the same time, like a bridge. 
and then induces activation. So, you know, makes these cells sort of um, tick and they, they, they release the substances that they have inside the cells. And then they also produce some other substances that they continue releasing later on. And these substances like histamine and other substances will, are the ones that are then going to, to um, have an effect in our vessels, in our lungs, um, and, and, and cause the symptoms that we can experience as part of allergic reactions. So this is the rationale to use these cells as um, a tool to support the diagnosis of uh, immediate type food allergies. Um, and so what we sorry, do in the basophil activation I'm test. I'm sorry, sorry. I just, to clarify too, and we're going to get to this. So versus the, there, cause there are, we're going to get into this more in depth, but you know, for the basophil activation test, it's what's called the, you measure a CD marker, CD63. And there are, I believe, CD markers for mast cells. Just out of curiosity, what is it? Why don't they, oh, because you can't get the mast cells in the blood. It's the mast cells are in the tissue. So that's why. Yes, exactly. Got so it, the it. mast cells, you can, you can get them. So you can get, you know, primary mast cells from patients. So it's either from skin, you know, from biopsies, from the tissue. Ah, right. But it's very right. difficult. And of course, it's quite right. invasive. We could not justify that right. ethically We're... for allergy testing. Got it. You can right. also uh, derive mast cells from stem cells in the blood. Um, but again, you know, that's very laborious and that's Got quite... It. Uh, artificial, you know, like right, it's, it's right. not, you know, with, with the whole blood basophil activation test, it's the patient's own cells that, you know, as they are in the, in the patient, we don't change them. We just add a little bit of allergen to it. And then we add antibodies that allow, that have a, a you know, a fluorochrome, a fluorochrome. So uh, that allows for detection. And with these antibodies, we are able to isolate um, by flow cytometry, which is a machine that allows, you know, that analyzes cell by cell what is happening. And so with these antibodies, we can isolate the basophil population. And then within this population, see, um, look at activation markers. And CD63 is the main one. There's a few, there's, there's a few others, but CD63 is really the main one. And so this is a, a molecule that exists uh, inside the cells. It's not detected when in a resting basophil. But in an activated basophil, when the when they release these substances, uh, when they are uh, activated, then it becomes expressed. It becomes uh, you know detectable on the surface of the basophils, and we can measure this. So that's what the the basophil activation test um, is about. Um, and we have shown in peanut allergy and also in other uh, tree nut allergies and more recently in cow's milk and egg, although that's not yet published. Um, but um, that um, you know allergic patients. Uh, have much more of this activation marker than than non-allergic, and the basophils of patients that have IgE but are not allergic do not respond significantly to to the allergen in the basophil activation test. So we have shown, for example, in peanut allergy, that this test is accurate in ninety seven percent of cases and more accurate than IgE testing. Wow! So that is really huge. I mean, this is like I guess you know this is almost like saying this is showing like real life you know, uh, activation, you know, whereas the IgE, I guess the best analogy is it's, it's sort of static. You know, when you, you're, um, you're getting a test, it looks like the person might That's be right. allergic, but this is showing, wow, this is like the action on the field. This is really what's happening in real time. So that's very, very exciting. I was looking at a, uh, a test from a company here in the United States that's doing this. It's interesting. And what they do is how you're describing. It was a case of a, a child that had peanut allergy, uh, which I found very interesting. So the peanut allergy was known. The patient had been desensitized, was in, undergoing desensitization for about a year, I believe, with oral allergy immunotherapy. 
And unfortunately, in this case, um, the CD63 was still reacting. It's supposed to be less than one. Um, but I want to ask you, was, it's interesting that you can explain this to me, so that the different dilutions, it, you know, at a very low dilution, well, at 10 nanograms per milligram, which seems like the lowest amount, they weren't showing, they weren't showing any activation. So you say, wow, that sounds good. But as soon as it moved up to 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, there was clearly significant reactivity, and they were interpreting the uh, results at this point that the patient was not tolerant to peanut and should not be challenged and should not eat peanut. So can you, I'm sorry, I, I'm trying to give my explanation. Is that yes. accurate or what, what caveats would you give as the expert? Yes, uh, absolutely. So, um, so we use different concentrations of peanut in this test. So we, we have a result for the lowest concentration, which we, we usually go down to 0.1 nanogram per ml. Mm. And then we test tenfold increases up to 10,000 nanograms per ml. So we have a result, a separate result for each of these concentrations. The ones that we found most useful to distinguish between, you know, allergic and non-allergic in non-treated patients is 10 and 100 nanograms per ml. Um, but this is comparing, you know, allergic and, and patients that have a, an IgE test, a positive IgE test, but are not allergic. So that is slightly different. The, you know, these, these groups are more distinct. The allergic and yes. non-allergic are much yeah. more distinct than an allergic patient that undergoes uh, allergen-specific immunotherapy. So, in a, you know, what studies are looking at um, the changes in basophil activation with allergen-specific immunotherapy have shown is essentially typically a sort of a shift in this dose response curve towards low, towards higher concentrations of peanuts. So, you know, uh, the basophils may still respond, but they need more allergen to respond. Um, well, that's a, that's a huge thing. I mean, w w you know, one of the things, um, I'm sorry to digress again too, but it's so important because I, I think our listeners want hope. And, you know, what I explain to them, honestly, with, with what I do, the sublingual drops for patients for peanut and tree nut allergies is we're not looking as they do with oral immunotherapy that a, a child, once they finish the desensitization, should be eating eight peanuts a day because a lot of them don't like it and you know there are unfortunately sometimes you know side effects like the eosinophilic esophagitis what i'm trying to achieve is that so that these children young adults adults can go to a party go to a place where they don't know if there's going to be a tree nut or a peanut in the food by accident and have a reaction so i guess you're starting to get to, and I want to just make sure I'm clear about this. It sounds like, so if I treated a patient, hopefully successfully from knowing that I'm on the right track, that at the lower levels, for sure, hopefully they wouldn't react at the 10 or the 100. And, I, and obviously it's good to get a baseline before you start therapy, but they might still at some point in the desensitization react to 10,000, for example, which is that equivalent to any amount of peanuts? Is there any way of gauging that yeah. or not really not really not really okay. i mean it's 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 difficult to measure the proteins in the circulation so it's you know it, not necessarily in terms of the actual amounts that's in the bloodstream uh of a patient at, at, at any given time uh but we can yeah so that's that's not well would you, know, you say though it's not clear I, I don't know again if you have a, you know examples of this yet but if you were having a patient that was getting let's say oit or doing the sublingual immunotherapy if for example at baseline they were uh, reacting to the 100 nanograms, like the second, in my case, the second from the lowest level. But after a year of therapy, they were now tenfold, like they, they didn't show a reaction at 100 nanograms, but up to 1,000. 
let's say, or still showing some response, we'll say, well, there's progress going on there, and maybe even more would be going on. Is that fair to assume or? Yeah, I mean, I th- we don't have as clear sort of guidelines to mm-hmm. to uh, interpret the results of the basophilic activation test over treatment. There are studies looking at that, and at the population level, that's what they have shown, you know, like a, a, a slight uh, change uh, in the dose that the basophil responds. There's also um, studies um, by uh, Dr. Sarita Patil and Dr. Wen Schreffler at Harvard, and also Dr. Karina Doe at, at Stanford, showing that the basophil activation test can also sort of predict the patients that are going to uh, be have sustained and responsiveness so respond to treatment versus the ones that are not going to to respond but i think we are still one step you know behind being able to interpret this at the individual patient level but you know so you know just speculating i think you know if there's a change and if there's a change towards um you know higher concentrations i think that's in principle a good sign but i think we are still uh, well, not you know completely confident to be able to establish cutoffs and, 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 and very clear, you know, guidelines to interpret mm-hmm. the results of the test in the individual patient level. But do you hope, I, I know I hope, do you think you could see the day where children who are going, you know, through these food allergy desensitizations will not need repeated challenges and that we'll be able to use this test as hopefully a, a good guide, you know, uh, Yes, I truly hope so. And especially, especially, you know, certainly at the start of treatment, you know, to confirm the diagnosis, for example, you know, a patient is know that they are peanut allergic, they haven't reacted in many years, or, or they have, and they still need to undergo a challenge to demonstrate a certain threshold or to demonstrate to the clinical body that they, they are allergic. I hope we can, we can move on past that, because I don't think I think that will put many patients off treatment yeah. and i think it's not fair to actually have to expose them and experience an allergic reaction when we know you know we are very certain that they will react mm-hmm. so i really hope so at the start of the treatment and hopefully monitoring i think you know i think i think we have seen uh, important uh, results uh, in 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 research studies looking at at the use of the basophil to monitor um, treatment and to monitor also um, spontaneous development of tolerance. So I hope we can be, we can use it uh, in the future to monitor patients' response. But I think we are at the point, you know, of starting to use it, and we are very close to starting to use it to, to document diagnosis, and and that could help patients, um, you know, confirm okay. their eligibility for immunotherapy as well. Okay, I'm going to ask you another thing, which again I haven't seen in the literature that I recall. But it would be interesting. Do some of the new biologics like Zolaire or Dupixent, do they have any seem to protective effect uh, on this basophil activation test that you can uh, that you're aware of? So with Amalizumab, it's interesting. So um, it's so with Amalizumab, yeah, with Zolaire. So um, it it seems to change the basophil response in two ways. It can be quite complicated because, so what what Zolaire does is that it mops up the IgE, right? It reduces the IgE and therefore it reduces the number of binding sites for IgE on the surface of the basophils. So that is a beneficial effect, you know, at the basophil level. Um, And it reduces, you know, basophil response because there's fewer IgE antibodies that can cover the basophils. But um, Dr. Donald McLashen in Baltimore has shown that um, Zolaire can also increase the, the, the sensitivity of the basophils, so make, making them a little bit more sensitive to allergen and to uh, to respond. So they will just respond more promptly, hmm. which is sort of a, you know, not so 
paradoxical. Uh, and could be a result, yeah. not so good. So there's a bit of this dual effect. But I think generally, um, yeah, so that, that which can play sort of against against each other. Um, in Dupilumab, I'm not I'm not aware actually of mm-hmm. of basophil uh, studies um, looking at the effect of the treatment on on basophil response. Okay, so I'm going to ask you. I, I have to put you on the spot. If uh, you had a colleague, you know, another doctor in the UK, who tells you, Doctor Santos, my child, I believe, has peanut allergy. We went to the doctor. He did a skin test. Whatever, she's positive for. Uh, peanut allergy. I'm so distraught now. I'm worried. You know, she has to carry epipens around. What would you advise her? What would you tell? What as far as following her as follows as far as possible treatment? You know, what's what's available there? And you know, in the in the ideal world, what would you tell her to do? Hmm, that's a tricky question. I'm told, I, I told you. I put you I'm going to the expert here. I I know what I would do, but I want to hear yeah. what you would do. <laughs> so what I would do. So things are changing in the UK. So I would I would possibly ask her to uh, get herself referred to our center so that we could recruit her into our in our studies and do the basophil activation test so that we can okay. have a bit more information. <laughs> but that's still a research test uh, in the UK. So I would have to do it through you know one of our research studies and get consent. Oh, so you can't you can't things. you can't get it as a regular test in the UK. No, not at the moment. Wow. Not at okay. the moment. Okay. Um, but I would you know being you know being a friend and I think uh, right. and I've, I know I, I'll I'll offer it to anyone that asks me. But it has to be they have to be referred to our center and be okay. and and you know accept to participate okay. in the in the study. So that's one thing. I mean the other thing is I would I would tell them about you know Paul Forzia who which is now um, uh, approved oh, the... by FDA, EMEA, and um, and, uh-huh. and it's now available in our clinical service. Uh, and uh, and um, just and for so our the, listeners, that's, the, that's the, the oral. Yeah, just for our listeners, that's the oral allergy immunotherapy powder that is available. It is FDA approved in the United States as well, but essentially, it's doing the oral desensitization. It's the OIT method. So you would you would do that over. I don't know if anybody's doing sublingual. In the UK, are you familiar with so anyone? Nobody doing is doing sublingual wow. in the UK, and even with OIT, so we are a little bit behind in the mm. in the sense that Palforzia. Now that Palforzia has been approved, now that it's being more, used more, but I'm only aware of one center that offers it without being Palforzia. So this is why you know I have no no preference or or conflicts right. of interest here, but okay. there is actually no other product to to be used at the moment. Uh, as things stand in the UK. Okay. All right. So I won't put you on the spot on this one as much, but what I'll ask you, you know, being on the cutting edge of things, what do you foresee of the next decade or two in allergy therapy? You know, I, I, I have to tell you this, I'll, and my listeners hopefully will laugh a little bit. You know, when I give lectures, you know, for many years, because I kind of was a little bit of a pioneer in doing sublingual drops in the United States. I, I'm a strong believer in it. I like it better than allergy injections. And I've done thousands of patients uh, over a 25-year career. But one of the things I used to do when I when I give a lecture to skeptical doctors, uh, <laughs> I used to you know before I would get into the details of the of how I treated patients, I used to put up a couple of slides. And one of the slides I used to put up was I would show it was a split screen. I would show a picture of a cardiologist on one side. It was like from the 1950s, a cardiologist with his stethoscope listening to a patient. On the other side, there was a picture of a cardiologist looking at his echocardiogram machine and all the technology. Then I went to another slide. I showed an ophthalmologist. He was with his ophthalmoscope looking at a patient's 
patient's eye, and then the other side of the screen, show the ophthalmologist, you know, with his new laser equipment, you know, thing. and then I showed a picture of an allergist in the 1950s, and he was doing skin testing and giving allergy shots, and then I showed in the present, the allergist was doing skin testing and giving allergy shots, and I said, what's wrong with this picture? Why, are, why has allergy been in this time warp for half a century. And then I say, look, we're, it's time to move on. <laughs> so how do you see the future uh, of allergy? Because, you know, a lot of people suffer and they're looking to people like you for what's the way forward. Yes, I mean, absolutely. So that's my thoughts precisely. I think we really need to modernize allergy and to be more scientific, I think, you know, yes. in our clinical practice. Yes. Yes. And and just to say, with, with sublingual immunotherapy, we do do it uh, for respiratory allergens, just not okay. for foods. Yeah. Okay. Um, and subcutaneous as well, uh, immunotherapy for, for respiratory allergens and for venom, insect venom, uh, but not for foods. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think we need to uh, evolve. I think we need to adopt, you know, in terms of diagnosis of, of food allergy, I think we need to be able to sort of combine tests to have more information. We need to adopt new ways of testing that are more accurate. And we need to be able to offer food challenges, yes, but to, you know, to, to patients that we are really not sure whether they're going to be allergic or not. And I don't know how it is in the US, but in the UK, we have a huge waiting list for challenges and we, we struggle to be able to respond to the need for challenges. So it's, you know, having more tests. And I think, you know, the basophil activation test, I really, I'm a, I'm a really strong believer in this test because it's the functional test. We look at what happens with the cells. It's not perfect like anything, you know, in, it's, but I think it can be really, really helpful. I mean, in terms of treatment, I hope that we will um, be more um, in, in, more proactive. I mean, we have, you know, I think the practice of allergy has changed since I've practiced that so we used to avoid and recommend strict avoidance of everything. Uh, now we are much more proactive managing food allergies and we are much more, we allow, you know, patients to have uh, that tolerate baked milk and baked egg to have them in the diet and try to encourage that, to try to introduce as many foods as we can. So I think we have changed, but I think we have to change you know, even more. And I think that is um, that um, I think we that will go through introducing allergen. Yes. But also, I think we need to understand better the immunology behind food allergy and behind the production of IgE to foods to be able to find biologics and other treatments that can change the immunology alongside with um, allergen. And I really hope that we'll be able to use more, you know, biologics and more sort of specific treatments in the future, rather yeah, than I, just avoiding and waiting for right. things to resolve spontaneously. I, I think in the United States, I can speak, I think also our biggest um, deficiency has been in the specialists really connecting with the pediatricians who are seeing these patients. I know I try to give like small lectures to some of the pediatric groups about what's going on in allergy because again, in their mind too, nothing has changed. And they, yet they have all of these uh, families and children with not only single food allergens, sometimes multiple food allergens, especially even in a family. And they are like just throwing their hands up. And then, you know, because I, I know when I give like a mini lecture or like do a little webinar for them, they're like, oh my gosh, this is what is going on. This would help. You know, they don't know. And they're really at the forefront of caring for these children. And, and you know, unless they're informed, you know, it's going to be very little progress made. 
Absolutely. Education is extremely important. We are also um, reaching out to, to have actually allergy clinics in the community, so in the GB practice at, at the primary care level. And uh, my colleague, Dr. Adam Fox, has uh, built the Allergy Academy, which was really, you know, uh, created to increase training in allergy of uh, healthcare professionals, because, you know, training in allergy during medical school and in within the training of specialties that were not allergy, which is a relatively recent specialty, was very, you know, poor. And people actually didn't know very basic concepts in allergy. So I think that's a very, very important um, aspect of, you know, the evolution and improvement of care uh, in allergies to educate other healthcare professionals about uh, allergy and about um, the appropriate management and new, new diagnostic tests and new treatments. Okay. Well, Dr. Santos, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. This was very illuminating to me, I hope to the listeners and for them to be hopeful about, again, new options in allergy uh, testing. Is there anywhere uh, the listeners can go to just follow some of your work? I know I, I'm fortunate I get to, you know, see, uh, you know, I get references to your published articles, but uh, anywhere else they can go or go to the any site at your institution to, to keep up on the latest? Yes, thank you. So the, yes, in the King's College web, King's College London website. So um, there is um, there is a profile for myself and my group, and a list of publications. And the vast majority of our publications are open access, so everyone can um, have access to them through the journal's website and through PubMed. Oh, great! Again, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very I much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It'll probably be released next Tuesday. Um, it'll be on like all the major. Pub-